Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. And before we meet our panel, let's have a look at the front pages. Uh, The Sunday Times is leading with uh, excess deaths rate rivals worst of the pandemic. So this is the uh, analysis that Seamus Coffey of UCC does of RIP.ie death notices. And uh, they're saying here that there's been a huge spike in the last few weeks in excess deaths. They also have... uh, connected or not connected to that that barely anyone aged 18 to 49 has taken the second COVID booster so far um, 3% have according to the figures they got up to la- up to last Friday and they also have and this will be good news I think um, as Harry would say good news for the whole world Palace considers Harry peace talks ahead of coronation Um I'd say the, the, that family thinking long and hard, what will we do? <laughs> Is there any way of stopping this? Uh, so peace talks in the offing. And, and as Harry himself said, the whole world is impacted by this uh, rift. So the whole world would be glad to see them uh, sit down together. Um, the business post is leading with developers could get tax breaks to build apartments. Um, and they seem to be specifying tax breaks for apartments rather than um, houses. Uh this Sunday, Independent is leading with a senior civil servant who is in dispute over his salary. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday, um, Harris, that's Simon Harris, quotes, Trust stability, not SF's populism. Justice Minister draws clear battle lines for election. The Irish Sun is leading on a family uh, who are very unhappy that their son's killer is to be freed from prison. And the Sunday World uh, leads with a man convicted, of course, of control who got a suspended sentence. And the Sunday Mirror has that tragic kind of story um, of the human remains found in a bed in a boarded up house. This is in Mallow. May have been there for more than 20 years, Gardy suspect. So our panel this morning, Sheena Cahill is, a, is an account director with DHR Communications and former president of USI. Lorcan Sir is a senior lecturer in housing at the Technological University of Dublin. Jared Howland is a columnist and a former senior political advisor for Fianna Fáil. And Gabia gatavets Katia is a political reporter with the Irish Independent. Good morning, everyone. Jared Howland, will we kick off with that um, mail on Sunday front page. So this is Simon Harris and what is he saying to people? Well he's saying continuity is what we the people need. Uh, We can't be opting for reckless untried uh, experiments in government at a time of great uncertainty and we'd be better off sticking with the tried, tested, proven capacities of his party Fine Gael and others in government with them. He uh, doesn't know if there will be a voting pact but he says in Wicklow he will be voting for candidates of Fianna Fáil and Green persuasion after he's he's voted for Fine Gael. Um, and I suppose uh, it, it's about saying, you know, that notwithstanding the mood out there is for change, actually, even if you don't quite understand it, what you really want is continuity. Um, I'm not sure it's persuasive. I think that is what Fine Gael essentially offered in 2016 and 2020. Uh, it didn't find favour on either of those two has occasions. The, has the temperature or the mood around the world changed a bit since, though, that people are... There is a bit of a flight to stability and people are seeing various experiments uh, not working out in different countries? Correct. And instability and, and danger can... Uh, provoke people. Not that anyone is suggesting that that, that Sinn Féin would be unstable in government. No, and uh, I I certainly don't think it would (coughs) necessarily be so. I mean, there's 101 reasons it could end up being unstable, but any party could end up in in, in that position. But I think if you look at the internal mechanisms of of, of Fine Gael and government, it's what they're not doing, and this ties in with other stories, uh, particularly around housing in in the newspapers. Which we will come to. Will come to is that unless you have new plans, 
continuity of its own sake, 11 years later after being in government, is not much of an option. That just keeping going because the others might be a bit dangerous or a bit dodgy is not persuasive. If you want to be the continuity that people choose, you have to have detailed plans. And unfortunately, in a whole range of issues, this, this government, including Fine Gael, seems to be rather out of plans. OK, well, they, they would say they have um, lots of plans and they're being very proactive about doing lots of things. Gabby, are we moving into an election season now is the second the, there seems to be a narrative that the second half of this government mm-hmm. is not going to be as to use Simon Harris's word stable as the first half of this government was well I think you know Fine Gael are very clear and even if you look at Taoiseach Leo Varadkar I mean this week he's really laying down the marker on housing he knows that's the issue that's facing especially younger voters that he's very keen to target that Sinn Féin voter is, of course, the younger voter. And they're topping the polls and he's looking at Fine Gael and he's getting a little bit worried. He knows that if his party is to be in government the next time around, they're going to have to make serious strides on this. And, of course, they only have two and a half years to make a difference. So I think that's why you have Simon Harris coming out, you know, knocking Sinn Féin on the head once again. I think, you know, Sinn Féin, if you were to ask them, they'd say, well, nobody wants Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, they're sick of them. Um, but I think Simon Harris makes that point interestingly. You know, I don't believe in this notion that you get, you know, you clear out the government, you put in all these new people into it who've never been in government before, and that that somehow is going to make things better. But I think it's very I suppose clear. If people want change, that's the change that's available. And we are told there's this mm. big narrative again that people want change. Or is it safer to put in, for example, a number of, fin- of Sinn Féin ministers and then perhaps a coalition party like Fianna Fáil who has experience of being in government? But, you know, this is what is on Fine Gael's mind. They need to do, they need to make serious strides in the next two and a half years if they've got, um, you know, a high chance of being in government next time around or even keeping their seats and gaining some like Leo Bradker wants. Gina, do the people on the streets, do the, the, <laughs> the young crowd, do they want uh, stability or do they want change? Yeah, well, I suppose the question is like, what does stability mean to Fine Gael? I mean, and if stability is the current situation of a health crisis, a housing crisis, a, you know, pro- protests on the streets uh, that are anti-immigrant, I'm not entirely sure that anyone's did, convinced yeah, yeah. that that, it, that kind of stability is what we want uh, and we want to keep uh, at the next general election. So I'm not like, Gabby's right, if if that's what Fine Gael are selling, uh, um, younger people are not buying it because we're not able to buy houses and lots of other things. Uh, and ultimately... Problems you know, that are replicated in a lot of other countries Absolutely. At the uh, but the reality is, what is it, 12 years of, of uh, you know, Fine Gael being in government at this point, uh, in and out. And the reality is we're not seeing a huge amount of change in that. So re- like making comments about uh, the status of other countries is not useful to us mm-hmm. um, and to young voters in particular. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, what Fine Gael, like you were always on my mind is literally what pops up to me every time Fine Gael or Leo Varadkar uh, talk about Sinn Féin rent free in their minds all the time instead of actually really bringing out some uh, you know proper housing policies that actually change uh, the situation uh, for, for people on the ground and I think it's going to be uh, based on the track record of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil that people are voting on the next election not about people being scared about Sinn Féin and I think that's important. OK, Larkin, you picked this piece as well. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about continuity, you know, voters are very smart. What you have is a continuity from, you know, 2012 to now where homeless went from 2,500 to 11,500 and rents are up hugely. The amount of housing that comes to the market, even though, you know, the amount per every year where building has gone up, the amount that comes available for young people to buy has gone down. So there's continuity. Is there a, a view, double-edged though, that sword. we had a very stable um, government uh, for the pandemic and that it was managed very well, that there was the country was reasonably calm during it. Business would say they were looked after, workers were looked after very well. That was a kind of a stability, wasn't it, that we all welcomed? For two years out of the last 10 or whatever it is, absolutely. And, you know, what I, I also think COVID masked a lot of issues as well. You know, in, in, in my area of housing, a lot of people went home. So the issues that were cropping up regularly, you know, were, were ameliorated for a couple of years. But they're starting to crop up again. The, 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 one of the other piece, you know, aspects of this piece is, is the, the discussion around populism and we should vote for a centre stable party rather than a populist party. I mean, to my mind, and I'm no political expert, but populism is a, is a political uh, act used by every party and, and you know, they all, when, it, when it suits them, they'll come down and use something uh, populist. What I see um, different from, and I'm not a party member of any party, actually the only party I've never spoken to in my life is Sinn Féin, but what I see different from 
for Sinn Féin to the other uh, political people and I don't really move in that many political circles. Er, last year before the summer I did a what I call my world tour of Ireland. I did a series of talks and lectures around the country in Dublin and Limerick and, and Waterford and places. To what kind of audiences? It, it was organised by the Irish Congress of Trade Union and, and there was a lot of people turn up so I met a lot of senators and TDs and politicians and I met some you know some Sinn Féin people there as well. What is really interesting what struck me is they're the only people that I know who in advance of any election if they ever get into government know what their portfolios is going to be. So Owen O'Brien knows he's going to get housing if if the cards land that way. So they're out there they're out there doing they're yeah. talking so to the private Brian, sector. Owen O'Brien, yeah. And, and then Pierce, I suppose, knows he's going to get something in, in the finance economics yeah. and David Cullinan health if the cards fall that way. Okay. But they're out there talking to the public so health providers, private health providers well at least I suppose I don't know who else the, the, Just my, to be fair now, who, who, who else? else of the minister? No, they're who, the only three that I, okay, so I come across. Okay, so you're saying there are three there. Okay, just yeah, so we're Yeah, we're sure, yeah. Fair, but, yeah. but my point is they're out there talking to the public sector, the private sector, the unions, a full 360. And I think they're going to be really conservative if they ever got in. Actually, to the extent that they might even disappoint a lot of people who voted for them. I have so a feeling so that we might not be, get the change that we Well, I, I don't think you're going to get the extreme change that a lot of people fear. Jordan, you're shaking uh, your head there. So... Sinn Féin people don't know who will be Minister for what because even allowing for Sinn Féin to do extraordinarily well they won't be in government without coalition partners and there will be a haggle and a deal over who gets what portfolios and then and only then when it knows what portfolios it has can Sinn Féin assign people and it has a history of being extraordinarily efficient uh, in terms of retiring people it, it wants to replace so I, I wouldn't take anyone's job as, as a given in any future government. Yeah, I think, yeah. Lurken, you, you know, you're kind of right in what you're saying in that, you know, I think Sinn Féin very much so, they have, they have their eye on the ball um, and they're ready to go into government. But I think we're, we've seen recently they've changed a lot of these hard lines they've had. For example, in the Special Criminal Court, they changed their position on that. You know, they're talking about um, they're against the carbon tax, they're against the local property tax. But once you actually go into government and you're surrounded by, you know, all these uh, civil servants that are saying, no minister, you should do this, no minister, this is the advice... They'll you be probably captured. will change your position. You'll yeah. say, "Oh God." So okay. you're, you're agreeing with Larkin that this could be uh, it could be a conservative enough Sinn Féin government if there is a Sinn but Féin. But Mary government. Lou herself will tell you, well, we're going to need two terms of government, a decade potentially, to make sort of any real strides, any real changes. Like things are not going to happen in a year or two. So even if Sinn Féin get into government and they have you know all the ministries that they want, they're going to need serious time. And then they're going to, I think, learn to make those changes, but then they're going to learn very quickly. Actually, this is not as simple as maybe I expected. The idea of a conservative Sinn Féin is exactly what Fine Gael fear. Like the, the, this idea that we would, uh, that anyone could sell Sinn Féin as, an, as a party that could meet the, uh, the needs uh, of Middle Ireland voters, voters who normally vote Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is exactly what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael fear. Um, so I think it's just going to be really interesting to see the reaction uh, to this kind of conversation because I think if the idea is that you're not getting a radical party in government then they're a lot more sellable uh, to so many more people and I know we always talk about Sinn Féin as if it's just young people voting for them but that's but the reality is no, that's not the case that, I anymore. Think opinion polls would suggest right up to the age of 65 they seem to have a fairly healthy people intending to vote for them anyway. Um Jared, your old uh, alma mater, mm. Fianna Fáil, probably more worried than Fine Gael about the idea of Sinn Féin becoming a more centrist party, are they? Well, Fianna Fáil has lost its working class base and the story, so that fundamentally changes what it is. At the same time, if they today, which I'm sure they will read uh, Simon Harris in the, um, in, in the Mail on Sunday, if they remember, which I know they remember very well, Leo Varadkar calling a housing summit in government buildings, uh, what they're looking at is a fight with Fine Gael for what for the middle of what's left of the middle, in which as of now, and this is a very tentative judgment, but as of now, I think Fine Gael looks like they're going to better Fianna Fáil in that struggle for the middle of what's left of it, and that's very worrying for for Fianna Fáil. However, a diminished Fianna Fáil, and there's every signs that it will be diminished, could still be extraordinarily important if it were Sinn Féin's coalition partner. Okay. Now, uh, connected to that um, then is the story in the Business Post by Michael Brennan, A House Divided. Tensions emerge between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael as Varadkar hijacks his word uh, housing lurk and you were looking at this yeah I, I was at the conf- at the, 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 the housing summit uh, during the week uh, and it was very evident that that, that 
this this was the Taoiseach's gig um, and Dara O'Brien it's almost like the school principal was coming in and taking over the teacher's class uh, and, and <laughs> doing that and, and, and it was very evident because it was the Taoiseach who spoke first and the Taoiseach who spoke last and in, in fairness to Which the Taoiseach is entitled to do oh, yeah, I guess absolutely, the yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. neither did he invite the Minister for Housing to the Housing uh, the Housing Conference the, 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 the week before uh, Yeah the, a meet, that was a meeting it was the, what was the Housing Commission meeting Yeah looking at yeah. you know the future of housing and whether we should have a referendum on the right to but, housing. But I suppose stuff. what everyone is saying, there's a lot of talk about would the Taoiseach not make housing the priority for the next two years and that's yeah. what he's doing and, and then and he does it and people are accusing him of a land grab. You no, know, I, I don't mind him making it his priority at all but it was just very evident yeah. uh, that he was he seemed to be taking charge and, and a little bit of you would feel a little bit sorry for, for Darrell O'Brien in that, you know, you do have the school principal coming over. That's to, the first time that's Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I think we would all feel Darrell O'Brien well able for himself. <laughs> Oh, yes, in that situation. Come here, tell me uh, any good ideas at the at this summit. Oh, well, a lot of it was. So the first thing that was really obvious there was a lot of senior officials from from Leo Varadkar's department and the Department of Housing there, which was great to see, including the Secretary General and all that, which which was brilliant. An awful lot of lobbyists there. Uh, the lobbyists outnumbered everybody else, and the lobbyists could manage them because there were so many of them to plonk one of you know one member from each from the same lobbyist organisation at each of the three breakout rooms. So they had a room a voice in every room where there was only one of me for example you know in, in one room so yeah but become, no were, like Peter McVerry Trust was there the Housing Associations Cluid were there as well yeah, there one member for each of them but there was three members from some of the other lobbyist organisations there were, were, were there now for yeah there for was yeah and, and it's very interesting one of the, the union people has asked the Department of Taoiseach for the list of the attendees and it was refused now I'm sure it's FOIable but they, they refused to, to release the list of attendees then again these are the people who are going to build the houses yeah these are the people who are a large amount of them were responsible for a lot of the problems. Uh, one organisation in particular responsible for the implosion of Mbora Planalo when it brought in the strategic housing uh, development, I, I would argue. But it's it's when you look at the, the influence of the lobbyists, you begin to see the evidence of regulatory capture. You begin to see the department officials kind of captured. And you wonder, these are really bright people, these men and women from the, from the government departments, uh, particularly at that level. And you wonder, how do they consistently come up with policy that does the opposite of what's intended? And the answer, I think, is because there's a very, there's a very close relationship between the lobbyists and industry and the department and you could see it there well, okay but always hang, on, hang on a second so but I don't understand does everybody not want to build and <laughs> do the developers not want to build yeah, absolutely. But yeah. the developers so, are also so looking for... why are they all at cross-purposes? Well, it's, uh, some of the developers... Remember, it's taxpayers' money that they're looking for. Uh, some of the developers are looking for money because they made bad decisions. They bought land and now can't develop it. And, you know, I don't know too many other industries that make poor business decisions that can go cap and hand to the government at every turn uh, to look but, for, but, uh, look for uh, handouts. Do they have us over a barrel? If they do, very much the have people us. people who can build and we need them and to that, build. That, do we need to make it viable for them? Yeah, that's very much part of the problem is that the industry has a say to over a barrel because the state hasn't done enough a lot in the last 20 years whether particularly the last 10 or 15 years well, What else can housing. the state do apart from like try and get people who build houses to build houses Yeah absolutely but, but the problem is they're paying them to build their own houses and really what you need to be doing is employing them to, to build houses and there's a difference there you know because the okay. more direct the more people you put in the way of what you want and who's going to deliver it the more expensive it becomes And, just, and I bring the others in mm. now I've w- one other question for you then because I think a lot of people are not uh, I think I understand it, but I'm not sure I do. The idea that the state then would um, f- would financially guarantee or underpin building by developers uh, of of the outworking of the mm. seventy eighty thousand planning mm. permissions we're told are there, would that then represent kind of a version of this holy grail that people talk about of this? Like an idea that some people think is mad of a state building company, would they? Would the state then be essentially employing builders to build houses for the state? Not really. No, a state building company, you'd have control over the design and standards and all that kind of stuff. Of over what is built, these are you know apartments that for which permission has already been given. So the standards are already there. I'm, I'm sure the vast majority will be one beds, for example. What this is, well, the problem is, for to get finance to build an apartment block, you need to go to the bank, and when you have somebody who's agreed to purchase it when it's done, the bank will give you money. If you don't, it's too risky and they won't. So this is the state coming in and saying, OK, we're going to, I promise, to buy that apartment block when it's done. The developer can then go to AIB or Bank of Ireland or whoever and say, look, the state is going to buy it and they'll agree then to fund it. If you don't have a pre-sale 
as such, this is what it is called forward funding. If you don't have that, you know, that pre-sale, yeah, yeah, well, no, then I the get, bank get, are going to say get, there's too much risk in this, so, so they, we're not going to so, do it. So the, the government is underwriting it, but are, are the government essentially buying those blocks? Yeah, they, they will. At the end of it, then they're going to rent, either long lease them or buy them, yeah. The danger is the government will end up with 40, 50, 60,000 one-bed apartments. Well, they're uh, not all going to be one-bed apartments. Uh, the majority of these will be... And we probably do need more one-bed apartments. Well, actually, the way well, the population is going? Is the demand you, not in that area? You think that, but one of, one of the interesting things I learned at the housing summit was that there's a big demand for three and four bedrooms apartments as well to, in order to prevent families from entering the homelessness, and that's a big problem as well. Okay, okay. Um, Gabby, going back to the to the land grab thing, the... the Headline of Michael Brennan's piece, a house divided, tensions emerge between uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael over this. Is there tension emerging here? I think very much so when you see that the housing minister wasn't invited to a meeting that the Taoiseach had with the housing commission. I mean, certainly there's eyebrows raised there in the backbenchers of Fianna Fáil saying, well, why wasn't Dara invited to that meeting, which was the week before um, the week just gone? So, look, <clears throat> I think government knows housing is a big issue. Then you're seeing Leo Radker, he's sort of the new Taoiseach, he's coming on, he's saying housing is a big priority, we're going to put everything we have into it. And, you know, Dara is the Fianna Fáil minister and Fianna Fáil are kind of going, well, you know, this is our portfolio, we have this housing for all plan. But even in the language change, I mean, Dara O'Brien, like, it was incredible actually being at that press conference during the week after that um, housing summit that Lurkin was talking about because consistently for these two and a half years we've heard Dara O'Brien say we're going to build an average of 33,000 houses a year and our budget for every year is 4 billion to do it Varadkar comes out and he says our budget is 4.5 billion I don't know where that 500 million has come from and we're going to build an average of 40,000 or 30 you know upwards of 33,000 maybe even 40,000 houses a year so immediately in the couple of weeks that we've had since the changeover already we're seeing a shift in government um, tone and language and it's all already and, being and, amped up and there's a change in there, there is some injudicious language being used by Fianna Fáil at times as well where people kind mm -hmm. of ma make these little utterances about well there's been 10 years of nothing being built yes. and then say oh no I didn't mean that and in interesting, any way as a, and as interestingly Varadkar admitted he said that's I don't see that as a dictator of Fianna Gael. that's just a fact that for 10 years nothing was built but yeah. surely you know and he's they, been the well, they would so argue long. that they were cleaning up a, a yeah. housing problem and they were created right. by Fianna Fáil and a crash to the and, economy, and they were right and there was a crash and there was a mess to be cleaned up and in their early days after 2011 they had very little money to do very much but by 2016 when the definitive judgment was made on housing policy there was money time has changed and it was a fundamental misjudgment to put the housing policy of the future circa 2016 into uh, the hands of private developers as the mainstay going forward and that has proven historically to be a deep mistake. But so we're still doing that though aren't we? We're of course that's the point. Who, 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 who's going to build if the private sector aren't going to build the houses Jared who's going to build them? Because in 2016 when things had improved significantly we know they had because the government went to the country on that very basis for a general election uh, the option still was in, in, in housing for all, I think was the name of that policy at the time. No, rebuilding Ireland. Yeah, uh, rebuilding Ireland. Sorry, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, that we were going to have relatively minimal level compared to uh, capacity in terms of direct state involvement, and that was a mistake. And that is the mistake that we're still winding out of. Okay. And can by I, the can way, I, can I bring you back mm -hmm. to to um, what what Gabby was saying there about this uh, the the tensions there and the the language changing and all mm. that. Going back to stability, and I think there is a sense, I don't think I'm being kind of in any way biased by saying there was a sense, a certain sense of stability to the first half of this government. Are we entering into a situation now for the second half of it where this stability that Simon Harris is promising is actually going to be the two of them uh, sniping at each other, trying to outdo each other and on an election footing. So you're right, there was considerable stability in the first half of the life of this government and I think Micheál Martin, a slightly understated style, very collegiate approach I think was important to doing that. Leo Varadkar has a very different style, uh, so has Simon Harris and I think that the strobe light which comes automatically with the Taoiseach's office has passed from Micheál Martin to Leo Varadkar and I think he is going to use that strobe light in, in different ways that will have the effect if not necessarily the intention of irritating his colleagues.
Okay, um, David Hall tweets there to say that Lurkin Sir is nailing it, rehousing way too much influence from lobbyists. Um, can, can I answer the question about who's, who will build? Because this, this confuses yeah. people. You're saying who's going to build it if not the private sector. The people that we're looking to turning to in the private sector are developers. They're not builders. They will employ the same people. Dublin City Council builds social housing. They will employ but ra- are you, are or you suggesting the state becomes a developer? The state already is a developer. That's how it builds social housing. But they employ the same builders as the private sector developers employ. It's your Rattigans, your Sisks, all the name, the companies that people are familiar with. They're builders. And is the state doing the actual property development on that? The, the we have the, the Land Development Agency. Mm-hmm. We have gone. Yeah, we, have a, we have approved housing bodies, which are effectively the state as yeah, well. Yeah. We have the Housing Agency. So they're doing it through, through, through the mediators of the housing associations, which seems to be a fairly successful well, well, they're buying two for every one they build. But yeah, but they're using the same builders as any private sector developer are go- is going to use as but well. Are you saying a development unit within the government actually d- directly employing builders and doing this kind of stuff? No, it but the issue be... contracts the same as you would if you're putting an extension on your house. You yeah. you get a builder and it could be the same builder as Jared or myself or anybody uses uh, and you issue a contract on the, on the builder. That's how social housing gets built. That's how all housing gets yeah. built, whether you're the private sector and then you or, or public at, sector. you look at the things like Metro North and stuff, the piece in the mail today about the National Development Plan and you'd wonder if they should be responsible for building anything. Housing should be part of the NDP. We should treat housing like infrastructure like we do with ESB, broadband, everything else. If we did that, we'd have a lot but, less. But bro- broadband? It's been a disaster. In the principle the, of it being the, the, the children's <laughs> hospital, the metro. Trying I mean, to find a successful public building project <laughs> to use as an example. It's like, we can do this, think for sure. Your, house, your, footpath, your, water, your footpath, your water, electricity, your broadband is all infrastructure, except the house that, that, that they all service. And I would like to see housing treated more like... It planned, what it means is it would be planned much more strategically and much more in advance. It is a good point, though, isn't it, Lurkin? Because if you look at the LDA, I mean, I don't think they actually built... All the houses they delivered last no, year were from, were from they've, developers. They've hundred, yes, they bought yeah. a couple of hundred houses. Yeah, there's so, two, apparently 270 actually built. And, and there is, and that's supposed to be the state developer, yeah. kind of. So that that point is actually, I think, important. If you do, you know, put so much of that responsibility of building housing onto the government, they haven't exactly knocked it out of the park with other public infrastructure projects. So why do we think that they're going to knock it out of the park with housing? Yeah, they keep getting in their own way. Is the answer there? To be honest with you, you know, that, that, that's part of the yeah, the, the, the project. Sheena, yeah, yeah, no, just Project Tussie that we're referencing there, which is with the Land Development Agency. They have a target of five thousand houses by twenty twenty six. They received uh, seventy submissions from developers, uh, and of that, two hundred and seventy were actually built, uh, and seven hundred under construction. So those numbers wildly, uh, I suppose, uh, what feel like certainly to me as a not housing expert seem wildly out of line with with a target of 5,000 by 2026 and of course targets are targets I mean targets aren't uh, you know uh, a stake in the ground uh, or a house built but uh, and ov- obviously we're, we're talking in the context of a significant growth in population um, with uh, refugees entering the country uh, and for lots of other reasons that we've talked about today in relation to construction industry costs and everything but uh, we can't blame uh, those things for, for the fact that the, the housing policy just doesn't seem to be delivering uh, at the moment. And internal spats that look like two brothers having a row in the garden uh, between Varadkar uh, and, and Dara O'Brien or anybody uh, just doesn't help yeah, no, the they would, confidence I think they would deny they're this. having a spat and they would say they're sure. one government with, with one aim and everything. Uh, Sheena, n- not to... Um, well, sorry, uh, just to say some of their you, colleagues disagree with that analysis. And they're perfectly entitled to do so, Jared Harlan. Sheena, <laughs> uh, can I ask you, uh, for, let's get a bit of lived experience in sure. here. How is your On housing. Dream, how's your oh, dream no. of home ownership don't that, going? Don't yeah, good luck. Yeah, I'm b- going to build a massive mansion in Longford for sure. <laughs> do you so feel close on the agenda? Do you feel One off, don't own another house. Every... Never. F- I have to look to see, do I own any other houses actually, just in case. <laughs> Easy to forget. Yeah. Are you, you know. closer or further away from the dream? Uh, definitely not this. closer. Um, we're myself and Sarah are getting married in September, and we're struggling to save even for that. I mean, I was saying earlier that even just like paying for basic stuff. I mean, I we're like I'm in that privileged position. Like I'm somebody who has a full time job, and my partner is working in the public sector, and it's just not on the agenda. It's not on the cards. Like so, I don't like again. I, I've talked about this idea of the property ladder before. 
uh, the idea that I feel like I and so many other people feel like we're in the pothole in front of the ladder looking at it because we're not even near the step because the idea that like Aoife actually Aoife Moore Aoife Grace Moore in the Sunday Times had a great point about this she said that um, the idea of mythic, uh, of mythically owning houses is kind of like the, the mythical gold card for coppers that like the idea that people have it the idea that people own multiple properties is just so far away uh, from most of us and the, the people that I know who have been very fortunate and lucky uh, to have had inheritance from parents or support uh, or a, a grandparent has passed away and passed something down. I mean, that's what how people are buying property. So mm-hmm. if you don't have that, um, you're not in a position uh, to buy any of these uh, these houses. And uh, that makes for frustration uh, along, uh, uh, for a lot of people under 40 in particular. But I know that it's, it's m- many people over that as well. Yeah, we you, said this before, Jerry, mm. but like there's somebody for whom the social contract, for want of a better word, should be working. Yeah, two, it's not. Two, two decent jobs. Yeah. Uh, that should be enough to aspire to what used to be known as a middle class lifestyle in, in Ireland. The same as middle class parents would have had in the, in the 70s, 80s, whatever. But that, that, that this generation isn't able to aspire to that, I was despite... A- Success, yeah. you know. She, she I, I was in a taxi uh, yesterday. A woman driver told me she was in her own house, age 21. Her daughter in her late 20s and her daughter's partner are saving frantically, but they're nowhere near the threshold. So these, these stories are commonplace. We have gone in the space of 20 years from a situation where you were nobody and a loser if you didn't have an apartment in a sunny place like Bulgaria to the point where you can't get a shoebox at any price 20 years later. And th- this is from one sort of um, madness to, to another. And it, property own- owning is about security. It's about people's state of mind. It's not just about the, the, the property mm. or the size of it or the number of the bedrooms. And I can remember when I was renting, and I was lucky because I'm old enough to have been lucky, it's just about being of that age at, in that place at that time. But when you are renting, you're always kind of, mm, you know, wouldn't it be just safer and better? And of course, it is safer and better. And it's about your whole frame of mind for your life of having it, you know, the roof over your head and knowing that roof is secure. And okay. we don't live in a state where renter, renters' property rights are extremely strong, like in other places where you might you, you, you intend to, to live in a rented property for 20 years. You know you're not going to be thrown out. Uh, on uh, on your bum, at the, you know, with a month's notice or less. That's not the place we live in. And so because of that, there is a real obsession with property ownership for that security reason. Okay. That the I, can I, can I just really quickly, that happened quickly. At the housing summit. At the end of the housing summit, I, I suggested to Letitia Kandara O'Brien that I was disappointed in the targets for home ownership in, this, in the housing for all. Around 33, 34%, way down from what home ownership used to be in Ireland. And I suggested that, that they relook at them. And the Taoiseach got up and he said, he said, I don't care what gets built because somebody's going to live in it. And I thought that was a really, I don't know whether he was okay, just having a swipe I, I, at me. I, or yeah, was, look, look, I, yeah, I think I, the Taoiseach has always been fairly clear that home ownership is. But he was at the start of the of event, of but then when it came down yeah. to it, he said he doesn't yeah. really care what gets built, which I thought was okay. a, a, a kind of a naive uh, statement. Okay, maybe. we need to take a break. I do want to mention there's a, there's a, there's a guy quite quoted in the front page of the Business Post, PJ Rudden, the chair of the construction sector group, said modern methods of construction could have the time required to build new homes. Uh, designed on a building information model, These b- b- then pieces of these houses go on site. They're made in factories, basically. They fit together like Lego. There's no waste, he says. He says the days of brick to, bricks and mortar are gone. The wet trades don't exist anymore. All the new buildings are frame buildings built with steel or timber. He's talking about there are apparently loads of factories doing it. Already in Ireland, he's talking about you turn house building into a manufacturing industry, essentially. So not weather dependent, anything else. It is it is an interesting idea, given that like house building is probably the only thing that we still do the same way as we did it 50, 100 years ago. Um, Michael O'Flynn, the developer, has texted in to say it's really hard to listen to the unbalanced discussion on housing. No one on who actually builds houses and understands the business. Some of the panellists are talking complete nonsense. I think I kept it fairly balanced, Michael, in fairness. But listen, maybe you'll come into the panel next week or in a few weeks and uh, we, your input is always interesting, um, I would have to say. OK, um, on a housing adjacent matter then... Um, Sheena, why don't you kick us off on uh, Sipo, Damien English, etc. You were looking at, there, 
Hugh O'Connell yeah. and uh, just Aoife yeah, two Moore, two pieces that get connected, I suppose. Yeah, um, so Aoife Moore in the Sunday Times on page fifteen, and, and Hugh O'Connell in the Sunday Indo on page six, kind of agreeing, uh, I suppose, in relation to uh, looking, I suppose, in the aftermath of the Damien English uh, issue during the week, um, looking at you know the powers of SIPO, which is the Standards in Public Office, uh, I suppose, Commission, and basically, uh, you know, Aoife is making the point that. Every time something like this happens, uh, we all kind of uh, we all kind of throw our cards in the air, and everyone's really annoyed, and everyone agrees it's terrible that uh, somebody was able to do this. So in the in the case during the week, obviously Damien in English, uh, you know, was was found to have uh, misled, I suppose, on a form about his ownership of property, uh, and that was incorrect. And so obviously uh, that's something that the political system, you know, doesn't want. You know, we want transparency. We want to make sure that our elected representatives are very clear about their ownership, their assets, and and when they are speaking, um, you know, in the dollar of the Shannad, that they declare interest if they're talking about something uh, or a piece of legislation that might Well, which they are they are meant to be required they, to do, exactly. aren't they? They are meant and, to be required to flag what, that. Yeah, absolutely. And what Aoife Moore, I suppose, the point that she's making about SIPO is that, first of all, um, SIPO have what she refers to as many teeth as a hen. Like, the, uh, the, they're not actually able to kind of go, first of all, go after uh, politicians of their own accord. There actually has to be a complaint made to them uh, before they... They can they can in, in investigate. Well, like they have they have Paul Murphy on official and he, on unofficial uh, unofficial com- absolutely. And uh, Paul has been uh, busy, uh, I suppose, uh, complaining about lots of different uh, politicians and, and and getting SIPO to look into them. Uh, I suppose the, uh, as well, Aoife Moore makes the point that there is a, a an a piece of legislation that's apparently on the desks uh, of politicians since uh, Brendan Howland's time in 2015 around the marriage equality referendum called the Public Sector Standards Bill. Uh, and really that's looking at the, the ability of SIPO to be able to penalise uh, politicians for stepping out so of the bounds and doing something fines. incorrect. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think in fairness to Michael McGrath, he has indicated that he is going to firm yeah, up so, uh, but again, SIPO's powers. And we all agree that politi- the ethics in politics is so important that we, that transparency is so important and yet we've someone like Neil Richmond during the week kind of saying you know well four ministerial resignations is just part of democracy I'm sorry but it's not obviously uh, you know the power to hold uh, politicians to account is incredibly important uh, but it isn't normal uh, that people um, would be in a situation where this stuff should be coming up 14 years later I mean the reality yeah, is but, of but, course but, but I suppose maybe he was making the point that it, they are resigning we they, they uh, are sure, the political but they, but they, been, they pay up political price yeah. but they don't pull, pay, pay an ultimate price and the question of whether they should or not is not for me to make it's for the electorate of course but the reality is is that we do hold people who are elected to public office to higher standards some people the politicians certainly themselves may feel that that's unfair for instance Damien English that happened 14 years ago uh, it feels like you know really is it that bad kind of thing but the reality is is that if someone like him is in the Shannon which he was talking about uh, vulture funds and their impact on mortgage then we had a right to know that he was personally impacted by that. Yeah, okay. And so for our confidence in the, in, the, in the political system, we have to have clean, clean, clean bill of health for all of our politicians. OK, I don't know if there's a lot that anyone can add to that. Lurkin, just very briefly, I don't want to get bogged down in it, but there's an interesting little sidebar to this story by Jodie Corcoran, which kind of is probably relevant to a lot more people in a way than the Damien English thing, which is this notion of local needs um, yeah. It, it, it's when you think about it, like it's a bit like local houses for local people, like it's, very it's, much so. Uh, yeah. So what what local needs? So a lot of development plans would have a restriction on who can build a house in in that are typically a one off house uh, in in their uh, county or their local authority area, and uh, which restricts it to people who have a local need. So you are the son of a you know a farmer, or you're the son of a or daughter of a of a, a you know a local person. You come from there, um, and there's also a thing called co-sanguinity, which means you mightn't have an economic need, you mightn't work there. But you have a blood connection there. You 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 know your your parents are from there. Your family is there, even though you might work somewhere else. So it, it, it's a lot of a lot of this is is kind of wrong in a way because in in the early two thousands there was a case taken in in Belgium, in the county the area of Flanders, which is the, the Dutch speaking part of, of Belgium, up, I think near Kortrijk, which is between Brussels and, and Antwerp, where a Belgian man who came from the east of the country wanted to build a house in this area, and the local authority, the Gemeente, said you can't do that because you're not from here. And he said I'm not having that, and he brought it to the European court. 
Court of Justice and many years later or four or five years later in 2013 the European Court of Justice said actually you're right just because you're not from there it shouldn't mean you can't build a house there and of course this would throw a lot of Irish development plans into a bit of a tizzy because you could have Lorcan from Dublin going down to Clare and saying I've every right to build a house here as much as the person from Kilfenora has the right to build a house here so that, that was a bit of a problem and the Euro- European uh, Court of Justice had a problem the European Commission uh, issued an infringement notice against Ireland in 2007 around this uh, and then when the when the case was was um, when the case was won by the by the Belgian man we came back to Ireland and Ireland negotiated a deal basically with the European Commission which said that in areas that are under rural areas that are under urban pressure uh, so areas where you have lots of people working in towns but moving out to live and commute in this kind of sprawl yeah. um, that they'd be allowed to apply local needs but outside that they would be more oh, okay. flexible about it so okay. it's, it's quite yeah. complicated but yeah. there's I a lot of Irish think, development I, plans I, who are still applying that I know people in America who've built fine houses in their local parish at home in Ireland I think we all know these stories yeah. okay anyway look I want to move on because um the other uh, the other story that really um, was a big part of the conversation this week was um, the protests around the country on on Thursday and Gabby you were looking at Ali Bracken's piece she was at Ballymun uh, for the Sunday Independent. Yes, she went to one of these protests and it's quite, really quite a remarkable piece in the Sunday Independent. You actually feel like the way Ali writes, you actually feel like you're in the protests. Um, really quite, she, she saw quite shocking, quite harrowing things, you know, speaking to different people who were there, um, namely certain political figures from the, I suppose, more right section of Irish politics. You know, they're sort of surrounded by almost security guards. Um, well, no, to be specific, she says that Justin Barrett, the leader of the yes. National Party, had two people who accompanied him to the toilet yeah. and stood outside while he went to and the toilet. And she spoke to him and when he was done answering questions, the people sort of went between her and, and Justin and that was sort of to indicate that he's finished talking to her. Um, some of these quite vile, uh, you know, ch- chants. Um, as the protesters walk, they chant, they will rape you. It's the most incendiary of the slurs directed at those seeking asylum. And Ali also spoke to some of the refugees that are staying in those, um, in that accommodation. They're saying the children are scared. I think the whole, I think the, whoever, uh, you know, some of the managers in the accommodation had to put up sort of signs saying, close your curtains and, and, and maybe try and, you know, just to try and distance yourself from or try avoid the protests as much as you can. And look, we've seen this play out um, for a number of weeks now. These protests are popping up all over the country. Um, some of the people that we're hearing in the Vox Pops, the protesters are saying, well, I can't get a GP appointment and my child, I don't have a spot for them in the crash." And they're highlighting all of these issues, which and they're making a fair point in that their areas have been underinvested in neglected by uh, politicians for many, many years. And all of these issues have, have built up for a long time. And they're saying you're put, adding all these extra people in. The reality is you've underinvested in the area and there's not enough resources for everybody. And then, of course, there's the other section um, of, of people that go to these protests for their own political um, you know, motivations. So you've got these two clashes and the government are coming out, opposition politicians saying, branding, you know, some people there racist, you know, very, I suppose, flammable language. But I think it would do well for the government to communicate with these people and these communities a little bit more than they have been. I know it's all moving very quickly and the government will say, well, we're, we're putting in all of these plans and we need to move very fast to accommodate people that are coming in that are fleeing war. Yes, of course. But I think you do should do the due diligence and speak to those communities so they know what's going on. Because misinformation, Jared, does seem to travel much faster than the facts in these situations. We've seen a lot of misinformation about like people in schools, nunneries, everything. So there's a day, uh, and they are getting all sorts of advantages. But we are being disadvantaged in all sorts of ways. And, and this is being co- contrasted very, very bitterly. Uh, men are, are being targeted in the sense that uh, the, the refugees, the incomers, uh, they are typically men who are in some way dangerous. Ironically, the people making these charges mm. most vehemently are more likely to be men that I would judge, frankly, to be a little bit dangerous. Well, no, there, there's, a, there's a big mix of people there. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think it's helpful to kind of start, uh, you know, De- othering them either as no, it's, some kind it's of not. deplorables. But if you look at the very sharp edge of, of, there's a lot of people involved in these protests and there are a very mixed group of people there for very different reasons. But there is a sharp toxic point to this spear. And at the sharp toxic point, there's nothing nice or excusable about it. 
Yeah, so th- so then, Lurkin, we've spoken about this before, and you have an involvement in uh, mm-hmm. in the the d- expert advisory group, yeah. and the expert advisory group. So, to what Jared is saying there, you can communicate all you want with the populations, but is is there that sharp end there, that opportunist sharp end of of uh, absolutely? And activists? I think I think there's a question here about whether these protests are legitimate. Uh, given so, like the right to protest is obviously legitimate, but it, sometimes the topic that they're protesting over might be legitimate, particularly you know when you're outside people's homes where they're living. The place to protest, I suppose, for some of these is outside Leinster House. I mean, that's where it's at. The, the other thing that we need to point out is a lot of the people who are, and I would agree with Jared, a lot of the people who are, you know, shouting "send them home," etc., etc. At the those, and they're mostly men, as far as I can see. You know, the, the people who they're shouting at have come from Assad and from, from, you know, Ukraine. And I don't think those people would be half as brave if they were facing Assad's troops or if they were in a trench in Donbass or, or any Kherson or any of their facing, you know, the armoured cars and tanks and guns of Putin. But they're brave enough when they're shouting at women and children. And I think that's wrong and that needs to be confronted. I think also it highlights, and we're seeing these protests, and I think this is actually really important. If the government are not careful enough about this, we could see a rise of an anti-immigration sentiment like we have seen in the UK, you know, which was, of course, one of the main uh, backbones to, to Brexit in many ways also. So if the government don't take this really, really seriously and handle it very delicately, you know, they have um, Joe O'Brien, he's overseeing into integration and housing for refugees, and that's one part of it. But if we don't tackle this and deal with it in a certain way, we could see that same sentiment on the right here. And there are yeah, part- political parties that are seeking to... You know, they're 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 trying to gain advantages out of yeah, these protests. I think, I think we have that point. The recommendation and, and has, been, has been made to the minister months ago that they need a professional communications plan yeah. to to fill that vacuum, that void that's been filled by the Justin Barnes of the world. Yeah, and I think they, in fairness, they are trying to get their act together in a moving situation there, and it is a very, it's a very difficult situation. There's no, there's no yeah, easy win on it really. Um, look. One one of the issues that maybe feeds into all that then is when we talk about um, people not feeling that they're they they're that Irish people who feel that there aren't the services there for them and everything is the health system. Um, and there, so, so you picked out two pieces here today. Just briefly first, because I think this point has been well made. Uh, but George, the Sunday Times, Sharon McGowan is writing one by one, they vote to solve the HSE trolley crisis. Yeah, there's a magnificent two-page two page piece uh, in the uh, Sunday Times. It really has to be seen, hold it in your hand, because there's big pictures of success of ministers and a big uh, print quote of what they said at the time, how this would never happen again. But of course they came and went and that this has happened again except it's got worse and worse. Um, in relation to to health, people are always talking about we need more. But in fact, since um, we've 17,000 more people in the health service since about 2020, um, there are areas of acute pressure where health professionals are just absolutely run off their feet and there are areas in the health service where actually they could work more efficiently. So, for example, in operating theatres doing elective surgeries, uh, these, these are underemployed at the moment because not enough people are, are getting in. On the other hand, the staff there are not being re- reassigned or realigned. So we need more beds, for sure. We need more doctors, for sure. Uh, we have the fourth highest ratio of nurses per thousand in the OECD, but we don't use them nearly cleverly enough in the places they're most needed. So some nurses are just in appalling situations. And we cannot really progress on anything unless there's change. And part of the reason we ne- there has to be a sign up the chain and the consultants will be first up on this. If the groups themselves that are in the health service, around which it operates, principally doctors and nurses, if they buy into the change, if the change is matched with resources that they legitimately demand is, is made, particularly in relation to beds, and I would say digitalisation is a huge issue as well, which will be phenomenally complicated and expensive. There is a way forward. The idea that health is insoluble is completely wrong. And the reason that piece in the Sunday Times is so important is that whatever the validity of any one of the plans of any of those four ministers who were highlighted in that piece, no one of those plans was ever to follow through relentlessly year after year. It was the chopping and changing of plans, albeit influenced at times by economic circumstances, that has bedeviled change, reform and betterment in, in the health service. There are things to do. We actually know what they are. 
What we haven't had is the stamina to see any plan through. Yeah, because I guess, we, well, we, we, there's a kind of a short-termism built into politics as well. Sheena, we need more beds, we need more staff and all that kind of mm. thing, but people would say as well, we need more <clears throat> vaccinations, and yeah. you were picking out that piece in the yeah, Sunday no, it, Times. Uh, so, uh, yeah, front of the Sunday Times, Julian Corr just has a piece just talking about the fact that, uh, based on, the, on, on on figures that she had access to, 3% of the 18 to 49 uh, age group have actually gone back to get their second booster. So I suppose, uh, you know, from, from, from my perspective, uh, uh, falling in that age group, um, I do think that there's more work to be done around the message on this. The 29th um, of December was probably not a good yeah, day to hopping out on the 29th. <laughs> you, know, we you know, we, you were med- you're in the middle of your, your 10th pub of a 12th pub. A lot of people in the middle of their second dose of that, COVID as well yeah, at that and, point. And, that, like. and actually that, that is part of the issue and I, I know the HSC have come out and said look we're using all the multimedia platforms we're trying to communicate this so uh, as someone who has gotten their second booster and very lucky to have gone and done that please go and check out the HSC website and it is complicated in that you there's lots of different um, groups within this um, that get their boosters at different times and all of that. And if you've had uh, COVID recently, I think largely recently, anyone over eighteen who hasn't had a second absolutely. booster. Absolutely. So can ch- get, just can check out the website yeah. straight away. And I know that people who I was telling to, to kind of uh, register and get online to get their second booster actually found that there was a, you know a real a real pile up and they couldn't get them for a couple of a couple of uh, couple of weeks. I got mine straight away, but it was just because I was I, I got the, the the push notification from the journal.ie okay. and. I can't believe we're still having this conversation, <laughs> but, there, but there you go. Jared Howland, you want to take the last few minutes of the show to talk about the humble ass. Tom Rowley, <laughs> the humble, magnificent ass. Tom Rowley in the Sunday Independent has a beautiful poetic piece about the donkey, the ass, which apparently we had more than a quarter of a million a hundred years ago, and now we've only 5,000. So we've a donkey crisis on top we of have, it. And, and we <laughs> thought yeah, we were bad, God. right? Where's the yeah. stability? But, 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 but the beauty of these creatures... The bottom are, is falling out of the ass in, in, population. In, indeed. Well, you might jest, but of course we depended upon this hum, humble creature for everything uh, one, once upon a time. And he quotes uh, President Higgins, who had... An ass on the farm where he was brought up, and in his poem, The Ass, the president says, of untackling the ass, he said, Nor did I begrudge him his freedom recovered. More than an image lost, it is a companion I seek to recover. Gina, in, in the 20 seconds left to me, as, <laughs> How as many the more rural times can you say ass here, on radio? Did you grow up surrounded by asses? <laughs> Well, there's a couple of ways to answer that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know um, I'm very lucky to to be obviously from the country and uh, uh, like being around surrounded by farm animals. I think it's fabulous. Isn't it Jenny the donkey? Is it Jenny? Uh, in in the in, in why we're talking about uh, in the banshees. Of why we're talking about, we're talking yes. about the banshees of Inishirin, and I think uh, I, I'm sure the the west of Ireland are really uh, bracing themselves for the uh, inpouring of Americans uh, to try and find Never donkeys. Mind that. Maybe it'll help the ass population as well. More people might decide. <laughs> To have to have a donkey because uh, oh, the if, if anyone see it, the, the, listen the real tragedy in that film was the donkey that's what drove him over the edge. Uh, okay, we leave it there. Sheena Cahill, Lurkin, Sir Jared Howland, and Gabby Gatavets Katia. Thank you very much.